Is anyone in here willing to own that they like uh, a particular reality show? <laughs> I'm willing to own it. <laughs> I went through a phase in my life where like Big Brother, especially early on, that was, that was one of my favorites. If you, any of you guys have some uh, misspent TV time, let me see if you guys recognize some of these sayings. You are the weakest link. Pack your knives and go. You've been evicted from the house. You are not the biggest loser. You've been chopped. I have to ask you to leave the mansion. You are not going to Hollywood. This means you're out of Vitazain. Or my favorite is the tribe has spoken. <laughs> and then he like puts out your torch. <laughs> in, case the, in case the phrase wasn't enough, we're actually going to extingu extinguish your light. <laughs> the tribe has spoken. Um, you know, it's, they're pretty ubiquitous in our culture today, these reality competition shows. You can look anywhere. They're all over the place. I, I went ahead and I Googled and I went to see how many different kinds of reality competition shows there are. What do people compete as? Here's what I found. Um, cooking. Modeling, designing, home and interior and all this stuff. Baking, singing, performing, working, losing weight, glass blowing, shooting, tattooing, surviving, dancing, racing around the world, ice skating, hair cutting, falling in love, and maybe just living in the same house with people for a few months. You can compete in all of these things together. The content of these shows is diverse, but they have one thing in common, right? They have that moment when a contestant or when a participant is going to get judged by a panel of experts, um, by an actual, they actually will call them sometimes judges on a show or maybe by their peers. So think about a singer in front of the judges table on American Idol or in front of the chairs that spin around on The Voice or the moment when they hand out the roses or they hold up the scorecards or they hit the buzzer that turns on the big red X, right? Think about an artist or a creator turning over their creation for it to be judged. Think about a chef or a baker working hard and giving it over to a panel to taste. Think about an aspiring model walking a runway. The drama of these shows is all built around these moments, right? These moments when we wonder, will our contestants that we like, will they have proved that they're good enough to stay there? Will they have proved that they've done enough to, to stay in the competition or maybe even win the whole competition. And sometimes we watch it for those brutal takedowns of people who didn't do well enough. Have you thought about how these shows kind of tap into something true about the way we think about life? You know, the shows remind us of our kind of underlying fear and assumption that what we do is constantly being evaluated. And that to succeed, we have to demonstrate an ability or a skill or have a charming personality or a talent that makes others see, others see us as valuable or at least as better than anyone else we're competing against. And I would say that kind of this fear is escalated in a social media age when you can see in real time how many people like what you put out there, how people are swiping on your profile or whether people are sharing things or talking to you or looking at your stuff online. We have a culture that seems to show us that we're being judged and measured all the time. It's not unreasonable to see it. As a matter of fact, since we were young, we were graded, assessed, and categorized. You know this experience. You were either put on the varsity team or the junior varsity team. 
we were given grade points, class ranks, ACT scores. We either got into honors classes and, and travel sports teams or we didn't. We got letter grades on art assignments. I got a letter grade in gym. We either make the team or we don't. We either get into the choir or we don't. We either get into the band or we don't. Our world seems intensely designed to reward our abilities and our performance and our achievements and our success and the best of us. It hands out trips to Hollywood. It hands out final roses. It hands out, hands out one-year modeling contracts to those who would pass the assessment and beat their opponents and perform the best for the judges. And worse, there's a side of it that casts out those who are deemed unattractive, that rejects those who don't perform up to the standards. It withholds a rose from those who aren't chosen. And so isolation and rejection become attached to our visions of failure. And only success and beauty and performance and appeal allow you to stay in the house and fight to prove you deserve whatever they're handing out at the end. We try, to do on, we try to undo this model for ourselves and our kids, right? We try to say things instead like, hey, just do your best. Or just go out there and have fun. Or, you know what, it's, it's okay. Did you try your hardest? But the problem is that's just grading on a different scale. Because what if you didn't have fun, right? What, what if you didn't try your hardest? So instead of evaluating on whether you're good, we just evaluate ourselves on whether or not I enjoyed myself. We internalize performance, achievement, and all that goes along with it with such, to such a great degree that it dominates our lives. We feel unworthy if we don't do our best or win. And we think we don't merit things if we didn't earn them or deserve them. But what if this is not how the world was designed to work? What if... This, this paradigm that reality shows put on display, what if that was not how it's supposed to be? What if there's a whisper for you and I today that we have this wrong? What, what if there's a voice calling us today that says our achievement and our performance and our success does not determine our circumstances, be they good or bad? What if it's true that we're not constantly being evaluated regarding our worthiness. It's a challenge of this morning. What if God, the creator of all, the maker of everything, has a different mechanism for how the world works? What if instead of your success and your achievement and your ability to earn or to please, what if instead what matters is that you and I are the recipients of a gracious and generous good gifting that pours into us out of the sheer delight that it brings the giver that would undo all of our reality show paradigms. It would undo all the ways that we expect the world to work because what if God is pouring out good things into our lives, not because we earned them, or discerned, deserved them, or because we're awesome. What if he's pouring out good things into our lives just because he delights to give them to his children? 
So we're gonna be reading in Psalm 103. We're only gonna read the first um, part of the psalm and you can read the rest of it later, I would encourage you. But that psalm is gonna walk us through some of these ideas. What might it be if life isn't a giant game of Survivor or The Bachelor? What might it be if you aren't constantly being graded for how well you do? What might it be if you were beloved, just as beloved if you played freshman volleyball as if you played varsity volleyball? What would it be if you aren't being punished for not doing things right? What would it be if you never had to prove that you were worthy? What would it be if you were worth infinitely more than you realize because the God of the universe is a generous God? We've been exploring these pictures of who God is connected with the book. I don't know if you're reading the book, The Good and Beautiful God, but two weeks ago we talked about how God is good. He's pure good, Bob taught us. Last week we talked about God being trustworthy. This week, God is generous. So let's read together. Psalm 103, starting in verse one. You'll be familiar with this. The psalm says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Bless his, sorry, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Let's pray. God, I pray that even now you might uh, release uh, even me and others from a sense of needing to prove ourselves worthy, needing to achieve so we aren't isolated and rejected. And God, that you would do that work by giving us a true picture of who you are and that you pour out into our lives the good things of your presence. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning we're just going to explore the text. We're going to explore a key principle about who God is out of that text. And then we're going to go ahead and we're going to explore kind of what might be some things that cause confusion. So we're going to explore the text, uh, explore some key ideas uh, about God in that text or that come out of that text, and then explore some things that might bring confusion. So let's go ahead and start with exploring the text. There's really kind of four um, movements I want to draw our attention to. The first is here in verses 1 and 2, and it's really an invitation to the self to remember all the good things that God does for us. An invitation to remember all of the good things that God does for us. Do you see what the psalmist writes? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Look who the addressee is. Who are we talking to? The psalmist is talking to his own soul. 
the psalmist is talking to himself, and soul doesn't really mean the way we think it means. It really just means everything that makes you who you are. He's talking to himself. We're listening in on a conversation that the psalmist is having with himself. And the psalmist says, hey, listen up, soul. It's time for us to turn our attention to God, to bless him, to praise him, to speak well of him, because we need to remember all of his benefits. And so the assumption here is that sometimes we could forget that God has poured out good things to us, that God has given us benefits into our lives. And so we need to heed the call that comes from us to us to remember There's a pastor, theologian, psychologist named Paul David Tripp. He's awesome. And Paul David Tripp talks about how the most important conversation you and I have all the time is the conversation that we have with ourselves. That we're constantly telling ourselves what we think is true about who we are. We're constantly telling ourselves what we think is true about the world. And that that conversation is so important for us to know what, that just shapes our lives. And so here the psalmist invites us and says, hey, it's time for you to remember, not to forget, soul, self, everything that God has done for you. And so after that invitation of the, of the, to the self to remember comes then the reminder of the good things that God has done. And, and it fills up the, the next part of the, the text, right? So we have in verse 3 that God, Yahweh, we're told Yahweh forgives all your iniquity. And then he heals all your diseases, self. Self, he, he forgives your iniquity, self. He heals all your diseases, self. He redeems your life, self, from the pit. And so we have these th- big three, right? We have, we have iniquities, the forgiveness of sins, and then we have the healing of diseases, and then we have the redeeming from the pit. And those are just, every commentator notes that those are the big three that shape the human condition. Our sinfulness, our, our physical brokenness, and our destiny towards death, our mortality. And so, so you know, a big, a fancy way a pastor could do this is to make it alliterative, <laughs> right? Right? And so, so down here we have our, our, um, our, our frailty, our, our, our finitude, our, all of these, these things that shape us, that, that down here below on this bottom uh, shelf of the good things God does for us. So he restores us, he redeems us, he forgives us, he heals us. And we know these things are true, not because they are just actively taking place in our lives right now, but because we have trust that that is the finished work that God has promised us. So Yahweh forgives, and he heals, and he redeems And that almost brings us up to zero sum, but then do you see what happens after that? Then he crowns us with his love and his mercy, and then he satisfies us with good. It's almost as if Yahweh wasn't just, it wasn't just enough to rescue us from the adversity that's going to shape our life. Now he has to just pour on top of that more and more in this crowning, this being brought into the royal inheritance of his family. He's like, look, I'm going to set upon you an indication to everyone that my loyal love, my covenant love is towards you. My mercy is towards you. Be your, your, the thing that distinguishes you as my child. And by the way, in this on top of that, I'm going to satisfy you with everything good. Because he's just piling it on and piling it on and piling it on. The word satisfy there. The word satisfy means to fill up, to, to have no need for anything more. And so think about sitting down at a table where all of your favorite food has been li- laid out and all of your favorite people are around that table. 
and you just fill yourself up with the people that you love and the food that you love and you push your chair back and you think, I can't take one bite more. This is what God does for us. He forgives, he heals, he redeems, he crowns, he satisfies. God is good to us. But he's good to us because of his character. And so we have a reminder of the nature of God. Remember what he says here. He says, don't forget that the Lord works righteousness and justice for those who are oppressed. And then he says, this is who I am. So I'm doing this not just for you, soul. I'm doing this for everyone. And he says, and he's made known his way to Moses, that God has let us know who he is. And we have then here in verse 8, a direct quote of God's description of himself that we talked about last week and God being trustworthy. And so Moses on top of the mountain is God's Goodness is, is God's presence passes by. God announces who he is in uh, Exodus 34. And he announces that he is the Lord, the Lord. Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The psalmist wants us to remember that this is all rooted in who God is. So God doesn't deal with us according to our sins, we're told in verse 10. He doesn't repay us according to his iniquities because there's all this love and all this forgiveness for us because he is a compassionate father. God is not the judge on Next Top Model. He's not the teacher giving you a grade. He's not a stranger swiping on your profile. God is by nature the one who is abounding in promised love to you and me. And the psalm doesn't connect any of this to the human's ability to achieve it or earn it, to please him or attract him. It only connects it to our fear of him, which is the way the Old Testament is just gonna talk about acknowledging him for who he is. That God, God gives all of this generously to those who belong to him, those who fear him. And so we ended our passage today with then we saw uh, the call to remember, the reminder of all the good things God has done, the reminder of his nature, and then the reminder of our nature, or the nature of humans. So we could have kept reading down to verse 16, but look again at verse 14, that God knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it's gone, and his place knows it no more. So there's a reminder that you and I are just out of our league. There's a reminder that you and I could do nothing to earn God's goodness. We're just dust. And yet, God has set his love upon us. These little dust particles, <laughs> right? This little ground that withers and fades. God says, I love this with an everlasting love. And so look at this general principle about God. If that was exploring the text, let's go a little deeper into this general principle that God is a generous God. One of the commentators put it like this out of this passage. She said, it's the message of the psalm that if one wants to know God's heart, the very center of who God is, one needs to wrap one's mind around the concept of his loyal, steadfast, generous love for us. That is how he's chosen to describe himself. So if you want to know what the point of this psalm is, it's to know that God is a generous God. 
You can see it because all in the language is just full of just abundance and overflowing. So it's not just that God forgives some of your sins. He forgives all of your iniquities. It's not just that God heals some of our brokenness, but he will heal all of it in a resurrected body. It's not just that he loves us. It's that he's abounding in love for us. It's not just that he has set his love upon us. It's that, did you see, he loves us as far as the heavens are from the earth. So it was the most that the ancient mind could conceive of a vertical distance. And not just that far, it's that he's thrown our sins away from us as far as the east is from the west. That's, that's as far horizontally as the ancient mind could have imagined. And so here it all is, right? Here's, here's the love of God and the goodness of God and the forgiveness of God in all of its extreme. It's supersized. It's jumbo. It's extra. It's being poured out upon us. And it's not just that God gives good things, but that he delights to do it. He wants to do it. He's excited to do it. You know, Jesus talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you know, even you guys who are evil, you know how to give good gifts to your kids. So how much more does Jesus want to give good gifts? Does God want to give good gifts to those who belong to him, to his children? Do you guys like giving gifts? Really love giving gifts. It's one of my favorite things, especially to my nephews. I could really love thinking about what they might like. I really love dreaming about what could bless them and what they would find exciting. And I think if little old Jocelyn really enjoys giving good things to people, how much more must God delight to give you and I these things? Must he just get so excited that he's setting his love upon us, that he's crowning us with all of his good things, that he's satisfying our desires? He's that compassionate father. This is who God has always been. His generosity is rooted in his character. This is, this is what God has described as being from the very beginning. So think about God in the garden in Genesis 3, right? And Adam and Eve have, have broken his command. They've betrayed him, and God comes looking for them and has this confrontation, and what does he do? He makes clothes for them. Our God is a generous God from the very beginning. From the very beginning, God has these efforts to meet our needs, to come and meet us with his presence. He's the giver of abundance. Did you see how much it just overflows in this passage? As a matter of fact, I went back just to look this week and I saw how many times when God's described as being the holder of steadfast love, is it combined with a word like abundant or like here we have abounding. And it's just over and over and over again. It's not just that God loves us a little bit. It's that he abounds in love towards us. So think about Jesus saying, I didn't come just that you'd have life. I came that you have life abundantly. Or think about all the ways that Paul tries to describe what God has in store for us. And so he says things like, God is able to do immeasurably more than all you could ask or imagine. Where he says in 1 Corinthians, he says that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has planned for those who love him. Or he says in Romans 8, he says, God has given us his own son. How will he not also graciously give us all things? Have I made a case? Do you believe me now that God wants to be generous? That he desires to pour out into our lives 
his goodness and his blessing in overflowing measure. Because the problem then becomes to us, if God is a generous God, why don't we experience it that way? Why do many of us sometimes secretly shake our fist and accuse God of withholding or being petty or thinking, God, you've, you've, you've made me walk through this hard time, this difficult time, or, or we think, God, you're not good to me. You aren't generous to me. My life is difficult and hard in ways I couldn't have imagined. So let's explore ways we might be confused. Just three things. Here's the first thing to know about God is he's not stingy. He's not stingy. Did you ever have like a stingy uncle? <laughs> I, had a, I had a like a great great uncle, I think, who would send like literally coins in the mail for our birthday, like 50 cents. You're like, oh, thanks. You know, (laughs) it wasn't a big deal. It was always funny. But like, do you ever have this this sense like you have more to give me, but you're holding back? Don't your kids ever accuse you of that? (laughs) You, You could be doing more for me here. I remember holding a massive grudge against my parents for not buying us a Nintendo. (laughs) You're being stingy. I know we can have this. I wrote up a massive plan when I was a young girl. I mean, massive plan, you guys, for how I could get a horse. And I, I, I mean, it was detailed. We had a walkout basement. And so I was like, okay, here's the deal. The, the horse can live in the basement. And it could just walk out the basement and I could ride the horse to school. And then I could tie the horse up where the, at the bike rack. Like, there's an obvious place for it. Like, I just had like very detailed, wrote it up plans. Here's why I can get a horse. I could not have thought of a better thing, a more generous thing for my parents to do to me than to buy me a horse, and I had it all worked out in my mind. But you and I know what young Jocelyn didn't know. It would have been a disaster. (laughs) I'm in the worst thing ever. It would just gone, it would run so poorly for us and poorly for the horse in a million ways, right? Like, like my mindset, my young mindset thought, you're withholding on me, mom and dad. There's no reason I shouldn't get a horse. But they weren't stingy. They were full of love. Because they knew what was best. And friends, it is the exact same things for us. Sometimes we experience God's goodness, his overflowing, abundant love, his generosity to us as something pinching and hard and difficult. But it's only because we don't see all that he sees. We don't know all that he knows. We are dust. And he is the compassionate God. God isn't stingy, but he's also not holding grudges. He doesn't, like, get mad at you and, like, hold everything back. He's not like, oh, you failed me once again. You know, he's not like the emperor in Star Wars, <laughs> right? Like, he's, he's not, he's, he doesn't look at you and say, gosh, you let me down again. I can't give you that good thing I was expecting to be able to give you. But God will confront our iniquity. He will confront our sin. And here's why, my friends. It's not because God is mad at us. 
But God condemns and disciplines and confronts brokenness in us because it hurts us. Your parent doesn't swat your hand away from a fire because the fire is going to hurt your parent. Your parents swat your hand around, away from a fire because it's going to hurt you. God's goodness is poured out in his discipline. God's goodness is poured out as we feel that pinching around our brokenness and the things. When we say that thing we shouldn't have said. And we get kind of snippy with our spouse or our family. Or when we treat someone rudely in the store and we feel that, uh, feel bad for it. That is a generous God. That feeling is God's goodness pouring out into our lives. God isn't, he's not holding grudges, he's not mean, he's not stingy, and he's also not assigning grades or keeping score. The author of our book does a good job of this. Um, he, he, he says here that this is about under, undoing the cultural nar- narrative of earning. Here's what he says in the book. He says, this narrative is rooted in our world where earning is the means by which we obtain things. From a young age, we learn that our parents' love is dependent on our good behavior, that school grades are given based on our performance, that affection is offered on attractiveness, that rejection, loneliness, and isolation are the consequences of failure. When every person, in every situation, in every day of our lives, treats us on the basis of how we look, act, and perform, it is difficult not to project that onto God. He's totally right. We live in a reality competition TV show world. But God is not like that. He's not looking at you and and curving the score in your church, right? He's not not looking at you and saying, well, I'm going to give you an A on generosity, but I'm giving you a big B on patience. And you're kind of flunking gentleness right now. God doesn't do that. Do you remember what the psalm said? He doesn't deal with us according to our sins. So he must be dealing with us a different way. He doesn't keep score. He doesn't assign grades. He's not repaying us for our iniquities. And why? Because God is a God of grace. Why don't I have to make good grades in God's world? Because Jesus has already taken the test. Jesus has already given us the final rose. And when you and I belong to him, God now sees us as though Jesus had passed all of the tests for us. It's called being justified. Not because we earned it, but because God loves us and has called us to be part of his family. Sometimes we don't recognize that goodness because we think goodness looks like something else. Sometimes we don't recognize God's generosity because we think that the thing that we want most is the thing that he's withholding from us. Sometimes we don't recognize God's generosity because we forget that we don't have to earn it. He's not obligated anymore. God simply delights to pour more and more and more of himself into our lives. And so the question becomes, will we receive it? God's not stingy. He doesn't hold grudges. He's not keeping grades. He wants to give you good things. Will you and I 
recognize it. I listened to a lecture this week by a, uh, 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 he's a psychiatrist and a neuroscientist, and uh, he's a follower of Jesus also, and he was talking about um, the, the biology or the, the neurophysiology of receiving compliments. And he said that it takes the human brain about less than three seconds, somewhere between two and three seconds, to encode a shameful, guilty, or humiliating experience. That like as soon as we're like, oops, I messed up, I'm, I'm terrible, look how the person looks at me, it's like instantly gets locked in our brain. But that it takes us somewhere between 30 and 90 seconds to absorb and experience and encode a moment of gratitude or a compliment or thankfulness. And I thought, oh my gosh, the psalmist knew that. (laughs) Oh my gosh, forget not his generosity towards you. Forget not all of the things that he has promised to do. Forget not that he is pouring good, abundant stuff into your life. Will you see it? Will you receive it? Because what it looks most like is himself. And so did you notice, did you notice how all the good things came with bad things in the list? That to know the goodness of forgiveness, there had to be sin. To know the goodness of healing, there had to be disease. To know the goodness of redemption, there had to be a pit. And don't so many of us in this room know that? That in dark and hard places, we see God more. And we see his goodness to us. One of the shortest parables in the scripture is that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man covered up and then in his joy goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Friends, listen to me today. You are that treasure. God's love is set upon you, and in his joy, he gave everything so that he could have you. And in return, he offers himself back. He says, you're not on a reality show. The tribe doesn't speak, I speak. I'm giving you the final rose. You win the prize, not because you're awesome, but because I love you, and I gave my son for you. When my nephews were really, were really little, I'd, uh, when I could be home with them, I'd do bedtime with them, and we'd lie in the bed and tell stories, and I'd tell them any story they wanted to hear, but i always tell them that I wanted to tell my favorite story before they went to sleep. So let me tell you that story as we close. There was a shepherd who had a hundred sheep, and one of them wandered away. And so the shepherd went and he climbed the highest mountains, and he went to the deepest valleys, and he went through the darkest caves, and he swam the raging river, and he walked through the howling storm, and he found his sheep. And he picked the sheep up, and he put it on his shoulders, and he went back through the howling storm, and over the raging river, and through the darkest cave, and down the deepest valley and up the highest mountain, and he brought the sheep home. And you are the sheep. 
I'll never forget the night that my nephew looked at me and he said, Aunt Jocelyn, Jesus is the shepherd, right? That's right. And he loves you. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would know your generous love towards us. I pray that we would open ourselves to experience that you know what's best, that you don't just love us, you actually like us. You want to be with us, you gave your son for us. We were the treasure that in your joy you went and bought, we're the sheep that you went and found. And God, for some of us that might be resistant, who are stuck in that way of seeing ourselves as needing to achieve or earn or please or get the right grades or be the right kind of pretty, be the right kind of person. God, would you release us from that? That instead we would know your love, your steadfast, abounding love, desiring to pour yourself out into our lives. And I ask it in Christ's name. Amen.